Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 as we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. In case you didn't know this, um, when our church was founded uh, back in 2002, um, not the first book of the Bible that we went through, but the first gospel we went through was the Gospel of Matthew. So it's uh, kind of great to circle all the way back to that at this point in time and, uh, and start over in our journey through the Bible and through the New Testament. So we are in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Last week we looked at what is called the Lord's Prayer, and then today we are picking it up in verse 16, looking down to verse 24, as we look at this section here where Jesus is giving the people uh, instruction about God. He's trying to bring to them who God is. Because for the longest time, the scribes and the Pharisees had uh, keep, kept God away from them. He, they had elevated God to such a place that he was unattainable. He was unknowable. And they, of course, wanted to know God. And really, at the heart of, of every man and woman is the desire to know the Lord, whether we know it or not. God created us, and God created us for himself. He created us for relationship with himself. And so Jesus, if you happen to have a red-letter Bible as you look here, uh, starting in chapter 5, and you just kind of flip the page here all the way through chapter 7, it's all red. So if you've ever said to yourself, boy, I'd really love to hear from the Lord, well, open and read the red letters, okay? Read what Jesus had to say. And this is the longest discourse, the longest uh, speech, if you will, that Jesus gave uh, during the, the tenure of his ministry. There are five discourses listed for us, as they're called in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the longest of those. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Read down to verse 24, and then let's jump in and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly." Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. God, thank you for your word. And as we read it, we know that you've already begun to speak to our hearts. And as we seek to understand it, would you be our teacher? Would you be our guide? And Lord, as many people as are here in this room or listening online, 
That's how many people need to hear from you today. So would you speak? And Lord, whether it's that you speak to us collectively as a people, or whether you speak to us as individuals who need a word from you this morning, may you do your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as we were looking at the prayer that Jesus prayed and going back there, um, Jesus had said in verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. We had looked at the fact that Jesus had sort of given us a model for prayer, not so much words to recite. And we know that, you know, in many places in the church at large today, uh, there are many uh, services, many churches that use this sort of liturgically, and you recite, <clears throat> recite it, you know, in different forms. Um, transgressions, debtors, you know, some, depends on where you go. Sometimes you get confused because you don't know which, which way they're going to recite it. But the Lord gave it to us as a model, and that's what we looked at last week. And we talked about uh, the first three things Jesus talked about in giving us a model to pray or teaching us how we should be praying was that we focus on our Father in heaven. In other words, we don't just come to the Lord out of the gate and just kind of walk into his presence and say, okay, okay uh, Father, okay, Dad, I need some stuff. And we start listing our requests before the Lord. And he's like, no, 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 we need to understand. God is in heaven. And God is holy. And he says, pray in this manner, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so as we come to the Lord, we come with a sense of reverence and awe and respect and an understanding that God is holy and that God has a kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And we begin to tune our hearts, as the old hymn says, to seek his grace. And so we, we come to the Lord and we, we seek him and we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. God, before I ask you for anything from me, before I come and read you my laundry list of complaints and issues and needs, Lord, I come and I say, Lord, your will be done. Because ultimately, isn't what we all want and need for the kingdom of God to come and to rule and to reign on this earth? And we know that one day it will, but there's also Jesus always gave us this understanding that there's the kingdom now and the kingdom future. And the kingdom now is him ruling and reigning in our hearts. But one day he will set up his earthly kingdom. And when that happens, the king will rule and reign. Righteousness will rule and reign. And so we are to look forward to that and we pray, Lord, with earnestness, with expectancy. Lord, bring your kingdom. Uh, Lord, do your will now. Bring, bring it from heaven to earth now. You know, so often we come and we come with our needs and we seek to bring uh, earth to heaven. We understand the comparison is, is not possible. What from earth could we possibly enrich heaven with? Earth has to be enriched by heaven coming down, not heaven enriched by earth going up. Earth is marred. Earth is sinful. Earth is fallen. We can't take the fallen and, and enrich that which is perfect. We seek our Father's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord, we come seeking to hallow your name. We come seeking your kingdom. We come seeking your will. And then we come and we say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, you know, everything we have comes from you. Every breath comes from you. Our, our food comes from you. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mitch spoke, and as he spoke, he brought to us in the first part of this chapter the need to understand that everything comes from the hand of God. 
And we'll uh, revisit that briefly this morning because we come back to a similar topic as we covered in the first four verses. And then we bring our needs to him, our, our, our need for, for daily repentance, for daily forgiveness. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, seeking the leading of God and seeking God's strength as we face the difficulties and the trials and the challenges of life. Deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Reminding us again, reminding ourselves, and we need to remind ourselves that God's in charge. God is in control. God is sovereign. And it's not so much about getting my needs met and getting my prayers answered as, as it is about me aligning myself with God and seeking the Lord. Listen, have you ever had a friend, you, you've been in turmoil something going on in your life, and you just need to talk to somebody. So you phone a friend, maybe that's your, your spouse, or maybe that's your best friend, or, or whomever it may be. Maybe it's a, a pastor or, or, or a, a believer who's perhaps more spiritually mature or wise than you. And you just sit and you pour out your heart to them. And a lot of times they'll listen to you, and maybe they didn't give you anything profound. Maybe they didn't tell you the key to unlocking the secrets of the mysteries of the universe, at least your universe, Maybe they just listened, and maybe they just prayed for you, and maybe they just put their arm around you and said, hey, you know what? I'm always here. I'll be here with you. I'll walk through it with you, and how often that has just given us comfort, and the Lord is that way. You see, everything that Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, is, these aren't the, the new rules, the new Ten Commandments. These are the things that Jesus wants us to understand about our relationship with God, about our fellowship with God. When Jesus began to use the term father as he spoke to these people, for them this was a brand new radical revolutionary concept that someone could look at God in heaven and call him father. It was amazing. And so it's all about relationship. It's all about fellowship with God. One person said this, the important thing about prayer is not simply getting an answer, but being the kind of person whom God can trust with an answer. I love that. So as we enter verse 16, he begins talking about fasting, and he says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. The only fast that God actually required in the scriptures of the Jewish people was found in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 27, where on the Day of Atonement, the Lord was asking his people to fast for the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was the time when the Passover lamb was brought and the sins of the, the people of the nation of Israel were atoned for. And the word atonement means covering. And the priest would go in, the high priest would go into the temple with the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and he would cover the mercy seat, which was that lid that was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And as he did that sacrifice, as he sprinkled that blood, God would look down from heaven into the most holy place there in the temple. And he would, rather than seeing the implements that reminded him of the people's rebellion, of the, the budded rod of Aaron where people rebelled against God or of the, the little bowl of manna which reminded God of how he had provided for the people for those millions of people for 40 years in the desert and how they complained and grumbled and murmured 
and seeing the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments, how out of the gate, before they even got down the mountain uh, to the people, that they had already broken them. Remember, Moses came down from the mountain and found the people down there in this drunken orgy. This, this abominable thing was happening while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, receiving the law of God, the people were down at the bottom of the mountain committing atrocious things, and he comes down. Remember the first time he came down, he was so horrified, he threw the tablets down and they broke, and they shattered, and he had to go back up and get, get new ones from God. And those broken tablets were there in the ark. And as God looked down in the ark and he saw these three things, they reminded him of the sinfulness of the people. But now as the priest goes in on the Day of Atonement and he sprinkles the blood of the lamb on the, on the top of the ark, the covering, the blood was the covering. When God looked down, he didn't see the reminders of man's horrifying sin and our transgressions against God, but he saw the blood of the lamb. He saw only people who were covered by blood. Remember in the book of Hebrews, it tells us, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so on the Day of Atonement, the people were to fast. And so we'll talk about what fasting is as we go through this, but the Pharisees had taken this to a new level. They fasted on Thursdays and Mondays. Remember, the, the high point of the week for a Jew is heading into the Sabbath. The Sabbath started at roughly 6 p.m. or sundown on Friday and concluded at about the same time on Saturday. And so the Sabbath was the high point of the week. So on Thursday, they would begin to ascend, if you will, into the weekend or into the Sabbath. So they would fast on Thursdays. And then on Mondays, coming out of the weekend, coming out of the time where they've had the Sabbath, they would fast again to sort of end that time and sort of begin their week. And so they, they created this fast cycle, and they made it a thing, and they uh, disfigured their faces, they they put ashes on their faces, they didn't bathe, they they wore uh, old clothing or clothes that were ripped and that were dirty. They sort of had a special pile of dirty laundry in the corner that they would put on on these fast days to make people think that they were more holy than they were. And Jesus says here, uh, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, notice Jesus begins by saying, moreover, when you fast. So Jesus expected that people would fast. Why is that? Well, remember, fasting is a way of seeking the Lord. Fasting, and the fasting that's spoken of in the scriptures is talking really about food. You know, sometimes today we like to sort of stretch this and say, well, I'm going to fast from social media, I'm going to fast from TV, and all of that, and certainly those are things you can apply it to, but primarily here it's talking about fasting from food. And in doing so, we deny the appetites of the body that we might keep our spiritual priorities straight. We deny the appetites of the body that we might seek the Lord and draw closer to him. In fact, back in the book of Zechariah, the Lord spoke to the people because when they fasted, they were not only doing it improperly, but their fasting was displeasing to the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, it says, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months during those 70 years, speaking of the 70 years of captivity, 
Did you really fast for me, for me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? You see, God saw to their heart. And that's what we've been talking about this whole way through. The Beatitudes, through the Sermon on the Mount, is the issue is the heart. And God sees the heart. And so God wants us to know that when we fast, when we do anything, when we pray, when we read the Word of God, when we give, when we tithe, when we serve, it has to be for the Lord. You see, we serve an audience of one. And the thing of it is, sometimes we get caught up in thinking, what do other people think? And the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that the fear of man is a snare. So don't be thinking about what other people think. The only person who thinks anything that matters to us is what God thinks and what he says. So you see, hypocrisy, as Jesus was speaking of with respect to the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrisy robs us of the reality of the life we have in Christ. We substitute reputation for character. We substitute words for prayer. We substitute money, giving money, for true devotion of the heart to the Lord, which is what God cares about. Our motive must be to please God and to please Him alone. No matter what people say, no matter what people do, We must cultivate a heart that is in the secret place. We talked about this last week. Praying in secret and your Father who sees in secret hears you. It has been well said the most important part of a Christian's life is the part that only God sees. When reputation becomes more important than character, we have become hypocrites because we care more about how we appear to others then we care about how we appear to God, and God truly sees the heart. Now, in Isaiah 58, that's sort of the classic passage in the Old Testament that defines and talks about the issue of fasting. And God says there in Isaiah 58, verse 3, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen, speaking to the Lord? Why have we afflicted our souls, and you, Lord, take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit, exploit all your laborers. In other words, people were not honoring the fast days. They were misusing and abusing them. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, and you strike with the fist of wickedness, and you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I've chosen, a day for man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? And then God says in verse 6, Isaiah 58, 6, Is this not the fast that I've chosen, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. In other words, when we fast, when we deny our bodies the pleasure of food, do we not do it or shouldn't we do it so that we might seek the Lord, so that we might break the bonds of wickedness? I mean, listen, if you have something you're struggling with in your life, maybe it's food, maybe it's some kind of an addiction. The Bible would tell us, rather than running out and seeking to pay a counselor for help, and I'm not saying that's not a good idea, but shouldn't our first place be to go to the Lord? 
Have we truly sought help and answers from the Lord? Have we sought solace and comfort in the bosom of God? Or have we done what we've always done? Call a friend, go see a counselor. Let's go to the Lord first. Now you might say, so why should, why should I fast? Why, why today should we do that? What examples do we have as we look in the, the New Testament? Um, in the book of Acts, there's a number of examples of this. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, you may remember the story of Peter up on the roof waiting on the Lord, and meanwhile as he's waiting on the Lord and God speaking to him, there's this man Cornelius up the road in another city who's also waiting on the Lord. In Acts chapter 10, verse 30, it says, Cornelius said, as he's relating this story to Peter, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and then gave him a message. So while he was fasting and seeking the Lord, we're not told specifically why he was fasting, but it's just something he was doing to, to seek God. And as he was in that state of just denying his flesh and seeking the Lord, the Lord appeared to him and gave him a word. How many of us desire to hear from God? Maybe fasting is a way to sort of quell the, the, the craziness in our lives, so settle it down so that we might hear God. In Acts chapter 13, we find uh, then Saul, who was not yet Paul, and Barnabas meeting with the elders in the church of Antioch. And as they were there together, it says in Acts 13 that they were waiting upon the Lord. They were praying together in Acts 13 too, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So while those men were there seeking the Lord, waiting on the Lord, praying, they were fasting, they were seeking God. And God gave them a word in that moment and he said, set, set apart from me, Saul and Barnabas, to the work for which I've called them. God making it clear to them, not just to Saul and not just to Barnabas, but he confirmed it to the whole group. And they said, hey, we, we've collectively heard God speak to us in some way and shouldn't we do this? So they laid hands on Saul and Barnabas prayed for them and said, well, God's obviously spoken. You guys need to go. You need to go and do what God has called you to do. And so that's when what we refer to as the first missionary journey began. But understand it began in the secret place in prayer with fasting as they were seeking the Lord. And in Acts chapter 14, we find that a church has been established as Paul has been going out and preaching and it says, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So even as they were appointing church leadership, they were fasting and seeking the Lord to make sure that they had chosen the right people and that they had done it in the right way and they had consecrated those people and set them aside to the Lord. You know, God has standards. He has standards for those who are leaders. And we need to make sure we have his heart, that we know the scriptures and that we are listening to his voice. There's one more application of fasting that I want to talk about. It's an unpopular one. You may not like it, especially if you're married. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, now I'd like to note for your understanding this morning 
that this is contained in the King James and New King James because it does come from a different set of texts, the majority text, the Textus Receptus, and this is one of those variants that if you happen to have an NIV or an ESV or an NASB, those are translated from a different set of texts. The word fasting is not in this passage, and from my point of view, uh, we're talking about texts and translations, we could talk about that another day, but I think the word fasting not being here makes a huge difference. So let me share this with you. This is in the context of marriage. This is the Lord or the Holy Spirit using the Apostle Paul to essentially give counsel to married couples in an area where there's often struggle, and that's in the area of sexual intimacy. And let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, let me just say this about that briefly. For those other translations that eliminate the word fasting from this text, let me read it to you. That you may give yourselves to prayer and come together again. How long can you pray about something? Weeks, months, years? But you see, fasting gives a sense of urgency, doesn't it? Because how long are you going to fast? A day, two days, three? If you're super spiritual like Jesus, maybe 40 days? But you see here, it gives a, a sense to the passage to understand that when this aspect of our marriage relationship is neglected, there's something wrong spiritually, and that's what he's saying here. And he's saying, we need to come together and pray and fast and seek the Lord and say, Lord, what's going on here? And what, what is the issue? What's the reason? And how do we correct this? Because if we truly understand marriage biblically, uh, Ephesians 5, Jesus is going to talk about it a little bit later in this gospel. Marriage is to be a picture of the relationship bet between Jesus and his church. So the relationship between husband and wife is a picture of that marriage relationship that Jesus has with his church. And so when that aspect of our relationship is neglected, there's a problem. And he says, hey, that's, that's a real area of temptation and it's a real area where it's a problem, where it mars the picture of, of the marital relationship and it mars the intent that God has that essentially our marriages should preach to the world of what the relationship with Jesus is like. And so he says that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. You see, so fasting is important to the Lord. It does matter. He doesn't give us a prescription. He doesn't say you need to do it on Thursdays and Mondays. He just says when you fast. And so let me encourage you this morning with this. Right? You know, I don't want you to walk away thinking we're laying a heavy burden on you. The point here is this. God has given us the issue of fasting as a gift. And it's a way we can draw near to God. It's a way we can seek the Lord. And so let us use it as such. May we see it in its true light that God says, hey, if you want to go further, if you want to go deeper, if you have an issue you're dealing with, fast and seek the Lord. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, you shouldn't be sort of telegraphing to everybody, oh, woe is me, I'm fasting. I'm weak today. My blood sugar is low because I'm fasting. No, he says, hey, get up, take a shower, shave, put on your makeup, dress. 
You shouldn't be appearing to other people as if you're fasting. You should be appearing to people as if, you know, he's not saying be false. He's just saying, look, you're fasting to the Lord. You're doing it for him. You're doing it as unto the Lord. So you don't want to be like the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. You don't want to be hypocritical because when people give them praise, he says, hey, they have their reward. But see, you're doing it to please your father. And your father will give you rewards. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's interesting that the Puritans used to call fasting the soul-fattening fast. And that's interesting. They viewed it as when they fasted before the Lord, it was a time when our souls would get fatter because we're focusing on the Lord. We're drawing closer to him. You see, we may fast today to lose weight. I don't know if you've seen this. If you have a smartphone, there's this app out called Intermittent Fasting, and you know it's a way to help control your weight. And if you learn to fast at the right time according to your body type, you can learn to control your weight and all that. Well, that, that's wonderful. But that's not the intent of fasting, is it? The intent of fasting is to seek the Lord. In verse 19, to continue, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy but where, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus is not saying to be financially or fiscally irresponsible, that you should not have a savings account or anything like that, that we, sh- we should be. The scriptures encourage us to be good stewards of that which we have in our possession. But he's talking about, again, the focus of our hearts. Where is our focus? What is it that we're thinking about? What is it that we are pursuing in life? And you see, the real issue here, as we'll see in just a moment with the following verses, is that Jesus would not have his servants seeking two objectives or trying to serve two masters. We are to lay up treasures in heaven. The most obvious question is, how do I lay up treasures in heaven? Some have said, rather than trying to store it up here, we need to learn to send it ahead to heaven. How do I begin to store up treasures in heaven? I'll give you some of the ways that I understand, and then we'll look at a few of the scriptures that talk about this. Just keeping in context with the passage that we've been looking at here in the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus talked about our charitable deeds, our charitable giving, our alms. And that was referring to both our giving, and it was also referring to how we treat people, how we treat people in need. The idea of alms was giving to those in need. So how do I store up treasure in heaven? Well, that's one way. Our charitable giving, giving unto the Lord, serving and helping those in need with genuine need. Our praying, we've been talking about that. Seeking the Lord, being in fellowship with him, being filled with the Holy Spirit so that when we do what we do, it's done for the glory of the Lord and not for our own personal vainglory. John 15 speaks of abiding in Christ. It speaks of understanding that he is the vine, we are the branches, and that we draw our life from him. And when we understand and keep in perspective that we belong to him and he gives us our life, that his life flows in and through us, and we begin to understand that really my life, our life, is to be an outflow of the overflow of his life in me. 
then that is storing up treasures in heaven as we serve others. You know, we're to get outside of ourselves and to look beyond our own daily routine and our own daily needs. We are to serve other people. There's so many ways. There, there are countless ways to serve others. You can serve other through, others through the ministry of the church. You can serve, you know, the children. You can serve through many ways. You can go out and serve in parachurch ministries. Uh, you yourself can stop and, and help people in need. I and mean, there's many ways to do this. Loving others. The scriptures are replete with the encouragement for us to love one another, to care for one another in the way that God cares for us. Telling others about the good news of the gospel, certainly that's a way. Being disciples of Jesus and spreading the good news. Uh, we mentioned in our announcement, supporting missions and missionaries. Sending uh, supporting them so that they can take the gospel as God has put a calling on their lives, just like he did on Paul and Barnabas when he sent them out to go to Jordan, to go to Georgia, to go to Italy, to go to wherever God may have called them to go to share his word. Loving your family. You know, God desires that our families be a picture of the church to the world. Keeping short accounts with God regarding your sin. Confessing, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, reading the word, having devotions, letting God be your mainstay, let him be your guide. You see, those are all ways to store up treasures in heaven. These are a few. That's not a comprehensive list. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How do we invest in the things that are eternal and not in the things that are temporary? If it can burn, if moths can eat it, if rust can destroy it, it's temporary. You know, the old saying, you've never seen a U-Haul following behind a hearse going to the cemetery. If it's something you can pack in a U-Haul to send to the cemetery to say, look at all the possessions the person had, you know they can't take it with them. You see, so it's not material things per se. It's the spiritual things. Paul, excuse me, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance Okay, this is the inheritance stored up in heaven for us by God. Incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So you see, there's an inheritance that God has for us in heaven. And then there's us sending ahead by storing up riches and treasures in heaven. It's going to be a glorious thing. You think you're rich here? What we have here is nothing compared to what we're going to have in heaven. Nothing here on this earth can ever compare to the glory that God has stored up for us in heaven. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. 
the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage that talks about the resurrection of the body and what it shall be like when we see the Lord. It says in that passage, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, it's the eternal, not the temporal. We live for heaven, not for earth. There's so many ways. My dear close friend, Pastor Rich Chapman down in Rhode Island called me on Friday. And he's one of those people, I'm sure you have them in your life, that when the phone rings and you see their name, you're going to stop what you're doing and pick up the phone. And he's one of those people for me. So I picked up the phone and listened to my dear friend as he... uh, began to pour out his heart about <clears throat> a friend of his from their church who had been a part of their church for probably about 20 years. This was a single man who had never married. He was in his 50s, <clears throat> uh, had become disabled, had a lot of issues, was on medications and all sorts of things. And, and Rich had been faithfully ministering to this man for a long time, meeting with him, sharing the word with him. And before this man took his life, he committed suicide. You know, he spoke to my friend, Pastor Rich, and said, do you, do you, think, I'm, you think I'm saved? And, and Rich had to sit there and give him comfort, not knowing what lie, was lying ahead because obviously this man was making his plan. And he did take his life, and it broke my friend's heart as he did this. And he did it, and his note that he left just said, I can't do it anymore. I can't deal with the loneliness. I can't deal with the pain. I can't deal with the sorrow There's no one, and he had no one. He had no family. No one was in this man's life. And my friend, Pastor Rich, as he sat and ministered to that man in the days leading up to his death, I submit to you that Rich was storing up treasure in heaven. Rich also went on to tell me that in the wake of that, that happened in January, that another lady in their church, who he said to him has really been a second mother, uh, she's... uh, he didn't give me her age, but she's certainly well advanced in years. And she has four children, but they're scattered about the country. And uh, this lady has reached the point in her life where she's on hospice. And she needed a place to go. And they couldn't afford to put her in hospice. She didn't have sufficient health care to do that. And so Rich and his wife, uh, Rich is a little older than, than Virginia and I, uh, they took this woman in. So she's on hospice. She probably has two weeks at the most three to live and they've dropped everything in their lives to take care of this woman and to to nurse her into glory. And I submit to you, while these examples may seem extreme, that Rich and Paula are storing up treasures in heaven. So you see, there's many ways that we can do this. Uh, I love that guy and he is a tireless servant. And you know, if we are meeting with the Lord, if we're praying, if we're seeking his face, God will reveal to us how do we send it ahead? How do we store up treasure in heaven? And then in verse 21, excuse me, it says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure, that is the direction your heart will move in. The Proverbs say, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. 
Someone has well said, and I believe it's true, the heart will always make a convert of the mind. Desire and longing is a more powerful force than thinking and intellect. So we have to be careful. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Where your heart is, excuse me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? You know, one of the most... uh, deceptive things for us today is our 401k can become our treasure. Should we be wise and good stewards? Yes. But is that my treasure? No. If the stock market crashes and that all disappears, hey, if moth and rust can eat it, if fire can burn it, if people can take it, it's not a good God. In fact, our treasures, our material wealth, things, riches, You know, it's been said money is a a wonderful servant and a terrible master. We have to understand that the Lord wants to be the Lord of all things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, uh, Paul wrote this. And this is in the context of something he's dealing with there with the Corinthian church. But it says, for who makes you differ from another and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So when you get a paycheck that has your name on it, is that really yours? Or did the Lord enable you to earn that paycheck? Is it really his blessing to you? Pastor Mitch covered this so masterfully in his message a couple of weeks ago talking about this. All we have comes from God. In fact, in the Old Testament as well as in the New, there's the principle of first fruits. The Feast of Pentecost is the Feast of First Fruits. And so the people practiced that whatever they got, the very first of it went to the Lord. You see, it wasn't theirs to do what they wanted. They didn't take the approach of, I'll pay all my bills and see what's left over. They took the approach of, okay, God gave me this. I'm going to to tithe of it or give the first of it back to him, and then I will keep the rest and do with it what, what I must. In verse 22, as we continue on, and Jesus is really just hitting us kind of in, in all these different areas, but he's getting to the issue of the heart. He's getting to the issue of our fellowship with God. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You know, light and darkness are always used in the Bible, not only of literal light and darkness as in the days of creation, but mostly of spiritual light and spiritual darkness. Now, he says here, the lamp of the body is the eye. So let's understand something, that in that day, a lamp with a little clay vessel that they would put oil in and drop a wick down into it. So that was the lamp. And then as you struck the match and you applied the fire to the wick and then the the light came forth, that lamp would give off light for all in the house to see. So he's saying here that the lamp of the body is the eye. In other words, the, the lamp illuminated things and the eye picks up light and brings it into the body, right? It brings it more importantly into our mind and into our heart. If therefore your eye is good, is our eye good? 
Now, this is not just, this is talking really about two things. This is talking about what we see and what we allow in the eye gate, but it's also talking about do we see things, do we see the world from God's perspective? So let me start there. Do you see things from God's perspective? Do we understand material things from God's perspective? Do we understand people from God's perspective? When you're somewhere in a checkout line, the supermarket, the pharmacy, wherever it may be, and you see a family struggling, maybe a mom struggling with her kids, do you look at them and judge her and go, man, what a terrible mom. What, what a terrible parent. They can't control their kids. You know how we are, right? We, we're so judgmental in our hearts. Do we see them like that or do we see them as God sees them? How does God see them? Sheep without a shepherd, they're lost. They need Christ. So maybe rather than judging them in our hearts, maybe we should be praying for them. Maybe we should step out on a limb and say, Lord, is, do, you, is there, do you want me to do something here? Do you want me to offer to help? Do you want me to offer to help follow them to their car and get their car loaded? You know, something like that. Do we see things with God's heart, with God's perspective? The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Do we see things through the lens of Scripture, through the perspective of God. We, we talked about this during the election. Seeing things as God sees them. You know, let, our, let, let the Word of God help us understand what the issues are. You see, the issues are always about the platform. It's about the principles. It's what the parties stand for. A party that stands for abortion and a party that's against abortion. That doesn't mean that one is more righteous than the other, but listen, I want my vote to count for righteousness as much as it possibly can. I don't want my tax dollars, as much as I have any control over it, to fund those kinds of of activities. So I want that to guide my vote. You see, I need to see things as God sees them, and it applies to everything. It applies to politics. It applies to my voting. It applies to how I spend my money. It applies to the choices I make in life. It, it applies to the decisions I make of which channel to watch. It applies to everything. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your body will be full of light. What do we allow in the eye gate? You see, it's not just the physical eye, but it's the spiritual part of it. Now, let me couple the eye with the ear. Okay, we know how powerful, uh, you know, s- smell, right? Sound, sight. And the world appears to these things. It says that the world appeals to, it, rather the, the appeal is the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? And there's always an appeal to us. In fact, Satan is always reaching out to us as the God of this age through the material world, through the medium of sight and sound. In fact, today, if you, know, if you watch a movie from, 30, 40 years ago, and you look at the, the effects, the special effects, then you watch a movie today. Some people today, they won't even watch a movie, an old movie that's black and white or a movie that has little to no effects because we've become so conditioned, haven't we? We have our phones. We're just so conditioned to look at our phones, and it's like every 10 minutes, it's like, I, I, am I up to date on the news? The eye gate, the ear gate, I went to bed last night, and uh, as I was going to bed, don't ask me why these are the crazy things that happen in life. This silly song popped in my head. 
that was from the, the 70s. And I'll tell you what the song is, and I hope it doesn't like pollute your mind and you all go home thinking about this song. Tony Orlando and Don tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Why did that song pop in my mind? I don't know. So I get up this morning, I'm getting in the shower, what's in my head? This song. I'm like, Lord, where did that come from? And to me, it just sort of illustrates the point of we have to be careful, don't we? Of what we allow in. The lamp of the body is the eye. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If we fool ourselves by thinking that we can see and read and listen to, listen, the kind of music we listen to matters, doesn't it? I've heard for years, I'm a music person, I love music. I've heard for years people say, well, I don't really, I just listen to the beat, I listen to the music, I don't really listen to the words. It's like, yeah, but you sing along to every song. You do know the words. It does matter. So we have to be careful what we allow in to our minds, to our hearts, through our eye, through our ear. And understand that if we've allowed darkness to flood in through those portals that God has given us, those portals to our heart, our mind, our soul, which he's intended to be a part of our total makeup, the total part of our being, and that our whole body, that our whole being might be consecrated unto the Lord. We need to be careful, don't we, what we allow in. We might need to set boundaries. We might need to have guidelines. I mean, I, as, as my kids were, were younger, uh, I was always horrified at what they might do at someone else's house. Because as my kids went to you know, the house, hang out with a friend of an unbeliever, uh, what standards do they have? What movies do they allow their kids to watch? What are they exposed to in that environment? We have to be careful. These things mar us. They change us. They end up controlling us. And then verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon means riches or wealth. And so he's saying here, we cannot have a divided loyalty between God and not only wealth and riches, but between God and anyone or anything else. And see, the question becomes today as we think about this passage of Scripture and what Jesus is dealing with as he's dealing with fasting and laying up treasures and what we allow to come in and our understanding of the world through the lamp of the body and how do we see things? Do we see things through the lens of Scripture? Or do we see things through our own personal perspective and our own point of view? You know, by the way, my opinion, your opinion, I don't mean to be offensive to you, but your opinion doesn't matter any more than mine does. What matters is the truth of God's Word. What matters is what this says is true of me and true of you and true of all people. How I feel, what I think about a particular issue, praise the Lord, you guys are awake this morning. It doesn't matter. It only matters what God says. Whether I agree with you or not on a particular point or issue is really not that important. It only matters if it agrees with God. And that's why we need to know him. We need to know his word. We can't serve two masters, folks. It's impossible. We can only serve the Lord. You see, our work can get out of kilter. We can, we can allow our work to overtake our our view and we can become a slave to our work and we, we can begin to just serve our work or serve the paycheck or whatever it is. But you see, 
God deals with that, doesn't he? He says, hey, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He says, hey, do you understand Colossians chapter 3? Do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than unto men. Why? Because it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So it's not really your earthly master. It's not really the, the, the person, the man or the woman who's over you in a supervisory position. They don't control your destiny in your life. God does. And when you go to work, you serve God, not that person, not that company. You see, we need to see things biblically. We need to understand how God has laid things out. I'm not subject to, to those laws. I'm subject to God's laws. God's word defines my life. God, God's word defines my reality, not how I feel and what I experience. The truth of God's word tells me what my experience should be. My experience does not define how I see and interpret the word of God. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. How I feel about something today versus this afternoon versus tomorrow morning can be completely different. Feelings are fickle. Views are fickle. I can be convinced by someone to believe something or, you know, somebody ever sold you something you didn't want to buy? Wish you had that money back because you got persuaded? Allow God's word to define truth and to define reality for us. This is what matters to us. And the question for us this morning as we close out is, what masters you? Is it God? Is it his word? Is it our relationship with him? Is it our fellowship with God? Or is it religious rituals? Is it laying up treasures in heaven? Is it what we allow to come into the various gates of our body, the portals that God has given us to be used for his glory that are being used for things other than his glory? Are we trying to serve God and mammon when in reality we can only serve one? There can only be one master. And let me boil it down this morning and make it really simple. You can serve God or you can serve Satan. Whom are you serving? Who's your master? the Lord Jesus Christ or the arch enemy of our soul, Satan, our adversary, the devil. You see, it's only one. It can't be both. And if you think, if anyone thinks that you can straddle the proverbial fence and have one foot in the world and one, word in, one foot in the kingdom of God, you are gravely mistaken and deceived. It is not possible. You'll love the one master whom you serve and you'll despise the other. Who is the master that you serve? What is it that masters you and masters me? Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. And God, as we come to you, we are so thankful that Jesus, you came, especially as you delivered this to the people, you deliver it to us this morning. You came to give it to us so that we would know what fellowship with God looks like. And Lord, I pray, we all pray together. We all agree this morning that we want our lives to look like those things that you're saying you want our lives to look like. And Lord, it basically boils down to two things, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. May that be the passion of our lives. May that become the mastery of our lives. And Lord, this morning, if there are any listening who have been partaking of the study and have realized that they don't know you. They've never given their heart to you. They've never believed in you, Jesus. Then may this be their moment. 
where they give their heart and their soul to you, where they cry out to you and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I don't know. I just, I want, I want to be near you. I want to be forgiven. I want to be whole. And so, Lord, may this be the moment where they say, and if this is you this morning, then just simply say to the Lord, Lord, I invite you into my heart, and, and I want to know you. Lord, lead me now. Become my master. Become my savior. Become my Lord. And if you've done that this morning, then rest assured Jesus has come in and he has forgiven you of all of your sin. And he has made you his son or his daughter. He's adopted you into his family and you now belong to him. And Lord, lead us in the days ahead. Help us to follow you. Lord, we love you this morning and we can say we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.